So I am going to talk, until Will, Will gets here, I plan to talk mostly about Scotland. Uh, I have things to say about Wales, Northern Ireland and England as well, but um, I know that Will wants to introduce a conversation about federalism in the UK, so um, I think I will mostly talk about Scotland. Uh, I am quite happy to... Um, I assume that there are roving mics. Uh, yes. Uh, so I'm quite happy uh, to be interrupted while I'm speaking, and if people want to raise questions while I'm speaking, then um, uh, the staff at the back will bring a roving mic up so that uh, I can hear you, you can hear me, and if everybody's happy, the podcast can hear all of us. So let me give you a little bit more background. Um, uh, I was, as the introduction explained, an elected member of Tyne and Weir County Council back in the 1970s. That body no longer exists, but it, it, it was a, a council that covered the areas of Newcastle, Sunderland, and the places in between, northeast of England. And although, although, I, was a, although I am a Scotsman, I was representing my constituents, not my nationality, when we got involved in the politics of devolution at that time, because at that time, the then government was proposing a scheme of devolution for Scotland and Wales, uh, which seems to us in the northeast of England to be uh, simply unfair to the part of the country where we were. It was already the case back then, and by the way, it's still the case now, that public spending per head in Scotland was higher than in the north of England, although Scotland is richer, has higher GDP per head than the north of England. And there seemed to us then, and there still seems to me now, more than 30 years later, to be something fishy about that. And uh, when I resumed research in this area in the 1990s and 2000s, this area of relative public spending has been the one on which I've spent uh, most, of, most of my energy. Uh, and in particular, for many years now, I and my colleagues have been writing about the, what's called the Barnett formula, which is the formula by which the block grant to the Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish assemblies from Westminster is determined. Uh, it's important to remember for what I'm going to talk about that up to now these three bodies spend a substantial proportion of the public spending that goes on but raise very little of the taxation. And that sets up a problem to which two main solutions have been proposed, and it's those that I'm going to talk about in a moment. The two main solutions being the scheme in the Scotland Act 2012, which has now been enacted, will come into force uh, unless the Scotland votes for independence, uh, but is almost totally not understood, I would say, outside Scotland, but I have to say it's almost totally not understood in Scotland either, so I'll explain a bit about that. The alternative, as I'm sure almost everybody in the room already knows, is Scottish independence. The 
Scottish National Party first won uh, a Scottish Parliament election in 2007, uh, then as a minority, uh, but it has governed as a majority. It won a majority of seats in the most recent election, 2011. It is secure in that majority until 2016, and it has promised to hold a referendum on independence in the autumn of 2014. A year chosen, it is said, by the SNP because it is 700 years since the Battle of Bannockburn. Some of us old cynics also suspect that it is chosen because, although there is not majority support for independence in Scotland now, there might be by 2014, especially if, for instance, George Osborne goes to Scotland and makes speeches in favour of the Union. <laughs> I think that the Unionist side is smart enough to ensure that that does not happen. So, um, I, and, and, and um, to explain before I get fully started about the book that I have written and the book that I am in the process of writing, the, the book which I have most recently completed, which is the one of which copies are available for me to sign at the end of this, is called What's Wrong with the British Constitution? And it is an academic book, but as the title suggests, it's also a somewhat polemical book. And today's talk is not on the subject of that book, but I will say that one of the things that I say is wrong with the British Constitution is that people involved in it, especially in England, are blithely unaware that the United Kingdom is a treaty state. It came into existence as the result of a treaty between the Parliament of Scotland and the Parliament of England in 1707. That created a new state called Great Britain, which was then further enlarged by the addition of Ireland in 1800, and then reduced by the disappearance of most of Ireland in 1921. But that state is a treaty state, and some Scottish institutions are embedded uh, have special protection, especially the law and the church. And that is a 300-year-old history, which is quite relevant to where we are today. However, the book, which is not available for you to sign because we have not completed it yet, but it frames everything I'm going to say uh, this afternoon, is going to be called Scotland's Choices. It's, uh, the manuscript is being submitted very shortly and it will be published by Edinburgh University Press next year. My co-authors on it are Guy Lodge from the IPPR think tank, with whom I have been working on the Barnet formula for some years, and Jim Gallagher, a recently retired civil servant who was, in his last uh, substantive job, Director General of Devolution for the UK. So Jim knows where all the bodies are buried. And some of what I want to talk about, especially before Will joins us, uh, indeed a great deal or almost everything that I want to talk about is uh, covered, will be covered in that book, which is designed as a non-partisan explainer to the Scottish people um, to say what is likely to follow if you vote no, what is likely to follow if you vote yes, and there is talk of an option of, uh, although the talk has faded slightly, but of an up to a point option, 
since most uh, Scottish people, uh, well, the largest, the, the most popular option in Scotland is for more devolution, but somewhere short of independence. And that option may pop around, may be available to be, certainly to be discussed and possibly to be voted on down the road. So, how did we get to a situation in which a referendum on dissolving the Union and repealing, of course, the Act of 1707 um, is coming up in only two years. I think it has largely taken the English by surprise and they're only now waking up in general to the fact that this might happen. Well, um, going back to the design of the Scottish Parliament, it was designed... Uh, the main figure in its design was Donald Dewar, who became the first First Minister of Scotland when it got going in 1999. And it was Dewar who insisted that the Parliament must be elected by a system of proportional representation, which he described to his own Labour Party colleagues as the greatest example of charitable giving this century, because it ensured it had the effect that Labour, then by far the largest party in Scotland, would not get a majority in the Scottish Parliament. But it's clear, and I, I, I met him once or twice in the last few years of his life, it is clear that Dewar was not thinking about the Labour Party when he um, uh, enacted that. He was thinking about the Scottish National Party. He wanted to make it impossible for the SNP to win a majority of seats, unless it also won a majority of votes in Scotland, which he thought was highly unlikely to happen. And now here we are, we do have an SNP majority government elected in 2011. How did this happen? I would say for two reasons. The first reason is that there were some defects, and you expect a professor of politics to talk about this at great length, but I will talk about it at very short length. There were some defects in the electoral system so that it was not as proportional as Donald Dewar had intended. And so, although the SNP did win a majority of seats, they did this on a minority of votes. They only got between 42 and 44 percent of the vote. So, there were some defects from the point of view of what Dewar was trying to achieve in the electoral system. However, when I say only 42 to 44 percent, people from England and many other countries would say, what do you mean only? That is far, a far bigger vote share than the Labour or Conservative parties could realistically hope to get in a UK election. Why did the SNP do so well? Well, clearly it's not because the Scottish people want independence, because the opinion polls have been tracking that question for over 30 years now, and opinion is actually very stable. About 30% of the Scottish people say their favoured option is an independent Scotland. About 40 to 45 say they want more devolution and the remainder, a relatively small minority, want either want what we have now or less, or for devolution to be wound back. Uh, that 30% has not shifted 
It was 30% when Labour ran the Scottish Parliament. It was 30% when the SNP had a minority government, 27 to 11. It's 30% approximately now. And of course, as I've already said, one of the SNP's game plans is to try to raise that number. And its best hope, I think, is not in what it says, but in what the opposition says. Um, if anybody comes over sounding arrogant and English, it will um, increase the vote for independence. Nevertheless, although the majority of Scottish people are not in favour of independence, they did give the SNP a comfortable, we say plurality, it wasn't quite half of the vote, but it was 42 to 44%. And in my view, this was because the electorate were voting on competence, not on policy. Uh, because the policy of all four parties, all four main parties who were contesting the election, was the same. That is to say, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Democrats, and the SNP, and indeed, I could say five, the Green Party. All five main parties uh, said they would spend more and they would not tax more. And that turned out to be a very popular platform. Uh, and uh, they did it because they could, because the Scottish Parliament is, as are the Welsh and Northern Irish parliaments, in the proper sense, an irresponsible body. It spends, but it does not, to any great extent, tax. And um, uh, as some of you will know, in another context, talking about the Rupert Murdochs of his day, uh, Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin said that what they were, this was then Beaver, Brook and Rothermere, were seeking was power, and power without responsibility, the prerogative of the harlot throughout the ages. Now, I don't accuse the SNP or the other parties of being harlots, but they do have power without responsibility. They have the power to spend, but they do not substantially have the responsibility to tax. And everybody who thinks about this seriously agrees that um, any solution, be it a unionist or a federalist or an independent solution, has to end that situation and has to bring about a situation in which the power to spend is balanced by the responsibility to tax. So, um, as soon as they were elected, the SNP announced that they would hold a referendum on independence. Uh, that's totally unsurprising. It has been the raison d'etre of that party since it was founded in the 1930s. In the 2007 Parliament, they did not have the votes to enact that because they were a minority. In the 2011 Parliament, they do. But in the 2007 Parliament, the Unionist parties, that's to say uh, in the Scottish Parliament, Conservative, Liberal and Labour did come together just once for just one purpose, which was to vote to set up a commission. This was headed by Sir Kenneth Calman, C-A-L-M-A-N, who is one of the great go-anywhere-do-anything-do-any-difficult-job figures in Scottish public life. Uh, those of you who know Scotland, uh, if I say that after the commission that I'm about to describe, he went off to chair the National Trust for Scotland, uh, will understand what a glutton for punishment Sir Ken is. Uh, so if he sees an institution which is wrong, he makes it his job to try to put it right. 
And the Kalman Commission, in turn, uh, set up what was called the Independent Expert Group, of which, as you've heard, I was a member. And that group was charged with setting up a, or proposing a, a system of financial arrangements of taxing and spending that would end this irresponsibility problem. So, um, what did Kalman recommend? Kalman was quite Canadian. That is to say, we got the two leading experts on uh, uh, federal, provincial tax relations in Canada to advise us, they being Professor Francois Vaillancourt and Professor Robin Baudouet. And they, we, Kalman, came up with a cunning plan. And this is the, here's the cunning plan which is at the heart of Kalman and now at the heart of the Scotland Act. As and when, or if it is enacted, the UK withdraws from 10 pence in the pound of income tax. And block grant to Scotland is reduced by the same amount. The Scottish Parliament then has to set a rate. The Scottish Parliament already had, has had the power to set a rate um, of, of, of income tax, vary it by 3p plus or minus. It never has because the, the money it has been getting under the block grant has been enough. And so um, if asked, would you like to levy a tax on the whole, politicians say, no, I wouldn't. If you ask the population, would you like to pay more tax on the whole, they say, no, we would not like to pay more tax. So it's not surprising that the existing tax powers have not been used. But 10 pence in the pound coming off UK income tax in Scotland means that there's a gap that has to be filled. The Scottish Parliament, if this scheme goes ahead, will have to be fiscally responsible because, of course, its decision can be no change. The Scottish rate of tax, income tax will be 10 pence, and it applies at all rates of tax. That's fine, but that is, a con that is then a conscious decision, and it carries with it an implication that the spending that the Scottish Parliament oversees will be capped at whatever level can be financed out of 10p in the pound. Or they can say, well, we want more services. Well, more services implies more taxation, so the Scottish rate will be 11p or 12. Or they can say, we want to save, uh, we want to reduce tax rates in Scotland, which is also fine. But in that case, they have to reduce spending, and the tax, Scottish tax rate could be 9p or 8p in the pound. Under any of these decisions, there would be a decision. And this is the, the core part of, of, of Kalman's cunning plan, is to force the Scottish Parliament to take some degree of fiscal responsibility for its spending decisions. There were a number of other aspects to Kalman. Um, just on the tax and spend front, um, uh, we, our group proposed, and the Commission in, then went on to recommend, and the Scotland Act enacts, the devolution of some small taxes, essentially taxes on stuff which doesn't move. Uh, a lot of the discussion 
I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I'll, I'll say now. A lot of discussion, especially coming from Northern Ireland, uh, about changing the tax regime is talks about corporation tax. That is the worst possible tax to devolve within a, within, um, a single country. Because if, I mean, the, I mean, it's understandable why the Northern Irish want it, because the Republic of Ireland has low corporation tax and they see business leaking away. But, of course, if Northern Ireland just, or even if Northern Ireland and Scotland set a lower rate of corporation tax, then every corporation in the United Kingdom would immediately move its headquarters to Belfast or Edinburgh, which might be fine or dandy from the point of view of the Scottish and Northern Irish Parliament, but is not fine and dandy from the point of view of the UK taxpayer. There would be what economists call a deadweight loss, and really no long-run gain for those countries. So the reason why corporation tax is a terrible re tax to devolve, namely that the tax base, the thing which is tax, namely com company profits, are instantly mobile, that very same reason means that the stuff which doesn't move is an ideal subject for, for, um, for, for local taxation, and the stuff that doesn't move at all is land, and therefore we think that land and property taxes should be under Scottish control, uh, and likewise with Wales and Northern Ireland. And one feature is that most of them already are. The UK has two quite terrible land taxes. They're called council tax and business tax. And they could be made much better uh, from the point of view of um, in the famous French um, uh, finance minister Colbert say that the art of taxation is to get the maximum number of feathers from the goose with the minimum amount of hiss. Um, corporation, sorry, council and business rates could be made much better. But the um, Kalman proposals also hand to the Scottish government the power over stamp duty land tax, uh, a power over landfill tax, and a power over aggregates taxation. These are all, in one sense or another, land taxes. And we thought it was rather neat that the power to tax putting stuff in the ground, landfill tax, and the power to, stuff, the power to tax taking stuff out of the ground, aggregates tax, should both be with the Scottish Parliament. So that's the Kalman regime, which will kick in if the referendum vote is no. Uh, what about if the referendum vote is yes? Well, um, we don't know, uh, because the uh, two campaigns, the yes and the no campaign, are just getting going. But. Already the Scottish Government has made quite a number of statements about what independence will mean if the Scottish people vote yes in 2014. And quite strikingly, uh, a lot of these statements are about things which will not change in the intentions of the Scottish Government. They intend, uh, let's start with an easy one, they intend for the Queen to remain Queen of Scotland. I say that's an easy one because it really doesn't involve anybody else. If uh, Scotland, if an independent Scotland wants to become one of the realms, of, as they're called, of the Queen and her successors, all it has to do is ask her, and nobody can stop it, and I think we can assume that she and Prince Charles will be very happy to agree. So that's easy. Some things are much more difficult, and I want to spend the rest of my time before I hope Will is going to join me, 
in talking about four of the really difficult issues, and those are defence, currency, financial regulation, and oil. And I'll give those the rest of my, my solo time. Um, let me start at the end with oil. Um, those with long memories, and especially those who lived in Scotland in the 70s, may remember that the SNP first came to prominence on a brilliant three-word slogan, It's Scotland's Oil! And then this had various taglines attached to it. The most memorable was, and it was on three or four-story high posters on Gable Ends in Glasgow, a picture of a, a very ill-looking old lady. So why do 50,000 people in Scotland die every year of hypothermia? Um, that was a rather spun number, but it was a brilliantly effective slogan. It's Scotland's oil. Now, at that same t and this was just at the time when oil was beginning to flow in the North Sea. At that same time and behind the scenes, Whitehall was changing the tax regime to make sure that it was not treated as Scotland's oil, but that it was treated as the UK's oil. And oil receipts have, from that day to this, gone into the UK exchequer, where they have been used, essentially, uh, to pay for current expenditure. And um, this is a matter on which I have a lot of sympathy with the SNP. Um, however, you should be taxing uh, oil, which is stuff that doesn't move, unextracted oil. Uh, in an ideal world, you should not be doing that. Uh, North Sea oil is part of the capital stock of the United Kingdom. By bringing it to the surface and marketing it, you are depleting the capital stock. Uh, the tax revenue which you get should not be being used for current services. It should be used for building public capital, partly, uh, by no, this is by no means the only reason, but one reason is that at some point the oil will, will run out and you ought by then to have what they call a sovereign wealth fund which will ensure that uh, there is a capital stock from which uh, revenue may flow to uh, in, ensure that public services can continue after the oil runs out. This has never been done. It was never done in the 1980s when oil prices were high and production was high. It was never done in the 1990s when oil prices slumped and production slumped. Uh, and it has not been done by the UK government now. So if Scottish independence comes, or indeed even if something short of independence but a more federal UK comes, and the SNP argues, as it of course will, that it's Scotland's oil, um, they will get it, and they may get it under something short of devolution, of, of independence, I'm sorry. They may get it on the terms that a UK government will say, here's a fag packet, and here are two sums. Here is the amount of money which you get at present under the Barnett formula. Here is the amount of money the UK gets at present from North Sea oil taxation. Uh, on fag packet terms, these two are approximately the same. You say it's Scotland's oil, so here's the deal. Okay, we agree it's Scotland's oil. We stop the Barnet formula transfer, and you're on your own. Now, that, and still more, the prospect of Scottish independence, puts the SNP in a bit of a pickle. 
because they have been saying for 40 years that it's Scotland's oil and they have a strong case. But if it becomes their oil now, when uh, oil production in the North Sea has peaked, and when, an important point that is often overlooked, the oil companies have rights to set their decommissioning expenditure against their tax liability, the tax receipts will, in the long run, go down. They will go down to zero before the oil itself does. Tax receipts will also fluctuate massively because the oil price is not controlled by the Scottish Government, and tax receipts fluctuate massively with the oil price. And you can't use a tax source which fluctuates massively to pay for your teachers and doctors and firemen. Obviously, you have a steady demand at any given level of public services for, expend for tax revenue to cover, and you cannot rely on a volatile tax source. Now, the Scottish Government also, and again quite rightly, says that oil revenue ought to be put into a sovereign wealth fund uh, to be used after the oil runs out, and that's fine and I agree with that and I would want to do it if I was dictator of Scotland. But you cannot at the same time say what all the parties were saying in the 2011 election, that, oh, the present level of public services will uh, stay the same or increase, and, oh, other taxes will stay the same or go down. The numbers do not add up. The numbers spectacularly do not add up. Scotland is in structural deficit even if the oil revenue is assigned to Scotland, and it's in very serious structural deficit if the oil revenue is put into a sovereign wealth fund. Which brings me to the next big problem, which is European Union. Um, the SNP now, unlike 20 or 30 years ago, is strongly Europhile, and it says Scotland will simply automatically, an independent Scotland will automatically accede to the European Union on the same terms as the existing UK. Now, one of the problems is that the president of the European Commission, José Manuel Barroso, within the last week has said, oh, no, it won't. Um, Scotland will be treated as a new entrant, um, and the terms will have to be individually negotiated. And if that's true, then there are a number of EU member states that will have something to say. Belgium will have something to say. Spain will have something to say. Italy will have something to say. These are all countries with powerful regional autonomist movements in their own countries, and they don't, the national politicians of those countries who are the ones who sit on the European Council are not going to do anything which encourages secession in their countries. So some member states, in the event of Scottish independence, will want to give the Scots a hard time. On the other hand, it can be said, and I think this is on EU matters is, as they say, the bottom line, that the EU is in no state to actually throw out five million of its existing citizens. It won't, no, the EU institutions will not want to do that. So in the end of the day, whenever the end of the day comes, Scotland will be admitted as a member. Um, questions like how many MEPs and how many commissioners will get sorted, how many votes in the Council of Ministers, these are all quite important, but they're not as important as Eurocrats make them out to be. What I think is vitally important is, now coming on to my third difficult question, currency. In theory, 
any joining member state of the European Union, and I think this would include Scotland, uh, is required to make a commitment to adopt the euro. Now, you might say, pull the other one in the circumstances in which we are now, and it's not politically realistic. It would not be politically realistic in any um, negotiations for the EU to insist that Scotland should make a binding commitment to joining the euro. And even if it were, commitments made by Sweden and the Czech Republic quite a long time ago are no closer to being implemented than they were, and I think we can all predict will not be implemented in the foreseeable future if indeed the euro survives at all. And uh, the Scottish Government have said, most recently in parliamentary written answers in the last few weeks, they have said that um, the currency of an independent Scotland will be the pound sterling. And they've gone on to say, and Scotland will seek to um, join with the, we'll, we'll call it rest of the UK. The name of the country that will be left over when Scotland leaves is not determined, but um, people in my uh, trade tend to call it RUK for rest of the UK. So, our uh, UK, uh, Scotland will join our UK in financial regulation. I see the US cavalry arriving in the shape of will, so uh, uh, I will wind up my remarks on these two matters, uh, defence and currency, sorry, uh, currency and financial regulation, then say a bit about defence, and then uh, stop. <coughs> <coughs> now, the Scottish Government says Scotland will adopt the pound. And sometimes when challenged, journalists say, but you can't just do that, you have to ask the permission of the rest of the UK. Sometimes in bullish mood, they've said, oh no, we don't, we'll just do it. Now, at one level, that is right. Montenegro uses the euro and has never asked anybody's permission to do it. It just uses it. On the other hand, a relevant difference between Scotland and Montenegro is that Montenegro does not have a gigantic financial service industry with most of its customers in the rest of the UK. Uh, that is sufficient, in my view, to say that adopting the pound unilaterally is not on as practical politics. So that means that the Scotland can adopt the pound for sure, but it will be on terms, and it takes two to make a bargain, and therefore I think that both our UK and the European Union are going to insist on terms which are in one respect very similar, and those terms are going to include that an independent Scotland must have a conservative fiscal policy, must essentially uh, raise in tax what it spends. If not, it can't play the game. It can't, be in, it can't be in the sterling area. And the very history of the euro over the last several years will make the UK, the rest of the UK government an extremely tough bargainer uh, it, it will have a strong incentive to say, you cannot stay in the pound unless you have, among other things, a, a very conservative fiscal rule, uh, such as the one that Gordon Brown introduced in UK but then did not keep to, or and that you must, uh, so you must have tight ceilings on debt and deficit, and you must have a tight system of financial regulation. No use the rest of the UK will say, no use pretending that you can be like Jersey or the Isle of Man. You are too big for that. If you have an independent system of financial regulation, it has to be one that we, the government of the rest of the UK and the Bank of England, 
are willing to sign off. Uh, and so it turns out on, in this scenario that independence is perhaps not so independent after all. Which brings me finally to the, one, the area which quite clearly Alex Salmon thinks is his trump card. Worryingly, the UK Ministry of Defence think it is their trump card, and they cannot both be right. And that is HM Naval Base Clyde. HN Naval Base Clyde has got two main components. It is the uh, submarine fleet at um, Faslane on the Gerloch and the nuclear warheads at Coolport on the next loch, Loch Long. Now, anybody who knows Scotland knows that these are geographically and geologically special places. They are deep sea lochs where the mountainside goes down straight into the sea. Therefore, submarines can go in and out unnoticed. And also, you can drive a warhead store into the mountain, and um, it's unlikely that the North Koreans or the Iranians can bomb it <laughs> successfully. Uh, these physical conditions exist nowhere else in the UK. Uh, were the uh, fleet to be moved, it would take many, many years and billions of pounds. Uh, that, I think, is why um, Alex Salmon thinks it's his trump card. I think that the MOD thinks that the same set of facts are its trump card because it fondly and I think foolishly imagines that in the event of um, independence, it will say, OK, Alex, it'll cost 20 billion to move these. Um, can we have it in annual installments of a billion, please, for the next 20 years? To which Alex will say, pull the other one. So uh, I, I see it as the, the, the settlement, whatever it is, will undoubtedly, I, I'm willing to predict, be one in terms of a UK sovereign base in Scotland. Uh, and an interesting precedent is that in Ireland in 1921, Britain and Ireland had just been fighting a guerrilla war, but Winston Churchill and Michael Collins were perfectly happy to agree to a set of UK sovereign bases in Ireland, um, which lasted until 1938 when in one of the worst timed um, diplomatic negotiations in British history, the British government of the day agreed to Eamon de Valera's request that the British should abandon them with very severe consequences in the Battle of the Atlantic in the Second World War. So uh, as to defense, I think I will only say we live in interesting times. And uh, I don't know if, Will, you want to say a piece now or whether we should invite some questions first. I think you should. I, have you already done this? I'd be very interested to see in the audience um, what proportion uh, believe that um, Scotland will vote for independence in a referendum. It'd be quite interesting. Have you done that already? No, I've not. Should we, are we, are we, who, who, how many we, expect the vote to be yes? How, I mean, how, many expect the vote to, how many expect the vote to be yes in our audience? So you've all come for a discussion about the potential Scottish independence, but no one believes it's going to happen. One person does. Shall we? Yeah, let's take a yeah, yeah, Gentleman yeah, yeah, at the yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. OK, let me go first, if I may, with some answers to these, and then I'll hand over to Will for general comments. Um, well, the factual question, who will get to vote, um, uh, is being negotiated between the Scottish and UK governments as we speak. 
The UK government's position is that the electorate for this referendum should be the same as the electorate for the Scottish Parliament, i.e. those on the electoral roll in Scotland, um, which um, has an interesting consequence that EU citizens in Scotland who are allowed to vote in Scottish Parliament elections but not in UK general elections get to vote. On the other hand, Scots living in England do not. Uh, now, the Scottish Government wants to extend the franchise to include 16- and 17-year-olds. Uh, perfectly, I mean, their motivation is perfectly clear here. They think that that generation is the most pro-independence. They think of it as a Braveheart generation. Uh, so the two governments are fighting over that narrow point. But on the broad point, uh, it's clear that essentially the electorate will um, be those resident in Scotland and qualified to vote in Scottish elections. Which brings me to the other questions, and I'm interested that we, in a sense, had two opposite sides of the debate presented by the, by the three questioners. One side says, why should the English even care? And the other side says, um, isn't this something so fundamental that the English could get a vote? You can't or should not unilaterally um, uh, uh, break a treaty, a 300-year-old treaty. Okay. Um, I mean, these are both interesting perspectives, and uh, I don't exactly share either of them. The reason I don't take the why should the English care line is that um, although I, I sense that this is driven by some of the same things which brought me into politics all these years ago, which is a sense of unfairness that the English feel that they subsidize the Scots because the Scots gets more public spending per head, although they are an average GDP area. Um, bear in mind that Scotland is a tenth of the UK. If the Barnet money stopped flowing, the benefits to every citizen in the rest of the UK would be so small as to be imperceptible because England is ten times the size of Scotland. And so if that resentment, which is just driven by regarding the, bunch, the Scots as a bunch of, of scroungers, it's, um, it's very understandable and it is played on by English politicians, but it doesn't play anything real in fiscal terms. Uh, and it would in, and will in practice be countered by the Scots saying, uh, you've been stealing our oil for 30 years, um, so don't you go on about uh, us subsidizing you. And then it will get into a totally sterile debate as it already has about who is subsidizing whom. Now, should the English get to vote? Uh, I think there's quite a good case for saying that they should. Um, but that is one for you to press on your MPs. It's not one that I can take a stand, uh, that I am taking a stand on. Um, but it does raise the very interesting question raised by the first question, which is how do you uh, take apart a treaty of accepting, for the sake of argument, my claim that 1707 is a treaty? Well, it is a treaty which had one big de defect, which was it did not set up an implementation body, and therefore um, it's not clear on the face of the Act of Union itself how you repeal it. Nevertheless, it is an act of the Westminster Parliament. It is, in fact, the first act of the Westminster Parliament because Parliament was created in 1707, and uh, people who talk about the history of the English Parliament tend to forget that. And therefore, by standard parliamentary procedures, it can be repealed. And a huge difference between Scotland now and Ireland 100 years ago is that politicians of all parties in the rest of UK have said they are okay with Scottish secession. Now, this may be 
driven in part by the low motives that um, our second questioner raised, you know, why, why should we bother? On the other hand, it does raise the interesting question, which has been raised uh, by two of the questioners. You know, the, the main party in the present coalition is called the Conservative and Unionist Party. Unionist in its title actually refers to Ireland, not Scotland, and that union broke up in 1921. Nevertheless, Conservatives are in favour of the union. So what's going on? And I think two conflicting things are going on in the breasts of Conservative politicians. One is the thought that the union really matters and we should do what it takes to keep Scotland in. And the other is the thought that if Scotland goes, we are more likely to form the government of the rest of the UK than we are at present. Uh, and also, uh, we're, we'll not be subsidising these subsidy wallers. So those are my answers to the four questions. And I'm now going to hand over to Will to say whatever you would like. Well, I'm aware that other people want to... Um, I think it's very interesting that no one here thinks that... Um, uh, Scotland will vote for independence. That's my view too, um, but only just. Uh, I just want to play a little bit of devil's advocate here um, about why we should care and why it might be a, a closer run thing than we think. Um, and why, actually, I think it could be extremely beneficial to um, you know, all the uh, nations and regions in the United Kingdom. I mean, I do think that... Um, I'm an apostle of something called good capitalism. I think that for um, kind of large part of the last um, kind of last 150 years, um, there's been a, all the biases in Britain have been against um, you know production and and um, uh, in all its forms because you can also be a you can also production oriented in the service sector. Um, there's been uh, all the biases are to trade money are to trying to make money from money, and and we've reached the end of the road in that um, kind of journey. And that you know there's a there's a there's a period ahead of fundamental questioning. I think about how this community is going to make how we as a country are going to make our living in the world. And I think kind of first cousin to that debate is how we're governed. And actually the agitation in Scotland. Um, for already um, a very considerable amount more devolution than it had you know, even 30 years ago. And I'm sure that one of the consequences of this vote, even if it's not won by Alex Salmon, will be yet more devolution, is the emergence of a, fe a more federal Britain. And a more federal Britain where we are looking to um, copy each other um, see what works, pilot things, experiment. And that's a much more creative setup than um, the one that we lived in before devolution happened. Um, I think the London, I think there's no accident that the two most interesting, arguably the two most interesting politicians in the country are Boris Johnson and Alex Salmond. Um, and you know, we've created kind of a political space for them to play. And I think that there'll be, I think Wales will follow, and I think we'll start to see um, mayors in other English cities, and the kinds of powers they will want will be the kinds of powers that Scotland's getting. So, you know, it's always been irritating in England to think, you know, they're, they're, you know there's the Scots, they're irritant. But in many respects, you know, the, uh, if you go back to um, kind of, it was Scotland that triggered the English Civil War, um, uh, with you know the glorious revolution and uh, the act of union were the precondition for enlightenment. Yeah, um, so you know we're we're watching something I think very important, and we should care, because um, it's 
a federal Britain, and even, I, I think, over this century, a federal republic of Britain, um, will be, I think, a much more creative place, a much more creative place, uh, um, a much more, um, you know, will be much, will the, the proclivities will be to deliver a kind of, in my view, a, a, a better capitalism and, a, and actually, I think, a more better, a, a better social contract. And the trigger to that will be these debates in Scotland. So, you know, so, um, I think I'll stop talking as I have agreement. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but I mean, I just think, so I, I just want to be, um, you know, a bit of a little bit of provocation. I mean, I think we should just, it's not an academic, it's not academic this. If you're in Scotland for even half an hour, you know, the debates between the pro, the, the SNP and the non-SNP are unbelievably vitriolic, you know. I've witnessed some, I mean, people are, are at each other's throats. This is about the future of a state. It's really alive in Scotland and we in England should not, should be alert to that. I think we have, we've, we've sparked something in the audience, so I think we should stop talking and have another round of comments. Gentleman in the fourth row with the check shirt is... No, okay. Right. Um, Will, do you want to go first on that round? Well, I, I just want to make two points. I mean, I'll make, make two or three points. I mean, first of all, I think there's a distinction to be drawn uh, between nationalism and patriotism. I mean, I regard myself as a, uh, as a patriot, um, and I think we saw... Um, uh, a demonstration of that, um, you know, in both Olympics and the Paralympics, you know, shouting for Team GB, etc. And I draw, I mean, I, I am a passionate patriot, but that doesn't mean leech into being um, a narrow English nationalist um, to consider just a. Uh, and I don't think that that um, I think I think the challenge in the kind of decades ahead in an era of globalisation, when there is so much interdependence between countries. I mean, goodness, the interdependence between England and Scotland is enough, but interdependence between you know, the members of the European Union is, is uh, pretty powerful as well. You know, and that we have to try and find forms of governance in which you can manage that inter interdependence while simultaneously respecting people's intuitive patriotism. Uh, I think one of the ways that you do that is being very suspicious of, of nationalism I don't like Scottish nationalism. When I, I was I, I went when I was at Paisley Grammar School as a nine-year-old, I and a young boy called Alistair Dalton, never forget his name, were chased around the playground, um, mercilessly bullied um, uh, for for weeks because we were English. We were Sassanacs, and it was only because I could claim part Scottish parentage that they let me off. But Alistair Dalton had the most miserable time. I've often wondered what happened to him. And I, I thought then and there that actually this kind of, this, this, this nationalism, this streak in, in, in Scottish nationalism is extremely unpleasant and nasty. And I don't like it in, when I see it in England. I don't like it when I see it in UKIP. I don't like it when I see it in the BNP. And I don't think that kind of English nationalism or the English Defence League, you know, where actually, you know, the, the, the unifying kind of culture is distrust, dislike, and sometimes xenophobic hatred of foreigners. That's not something which I think is actually, you know, part of my DNA as an Englishman or, or, a, or, or a value system or, or, or political movement that I want to kind of uh, support. And I think it will always be marginal, I hope. So I just want to, you know, I do think that needs to be said in this discussion because I, I, I actually think there is a strand in the SNP which is extremely unpleasant. 
and, uh, and a lot of good people in Scotland think it's unpleasant too, and I think it will be ultimately the reason why actually the Scots won't vote for independence. That said, you know, we have to recognise that actually the way um, the unitary state in the UK has operated over the last kind of 150 years has not been good for Scotland or Wales or actually our cities outside London. And to the question, you know, what's it going to look like, this, this federal Britain that I've talked about, it'll be, we do messy in Britain, you know, we have a messy kind of constitutional settlement unwritten, a messy house of lords, a messy relationship between um, Westminster and, and local government. And I think what's going to emerge is a messy federalism. Um, I think that, but I, I do think the pacemaker in it is going to be um, Scotland. And, in, to, and to that respect, in that respect, I, I, I rather like what's going on. I think that there will be, I think there, I mean, there's, there's no way you can organise um, a federalism in Britain given, you know, the, 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 the sovereignty of the House of Commons, um, the ambiguity between uh, it being um, kind of both a British and an English Parliament, I think, will carry on. But I think there will be, I think there will be uh, parliaments with increasing power in Scotland, Northern Ireland and in Wales. I think, and I think that more um, cities uh, will follow um, Liverpool and Bristol in having um, mayors. And I think that will be, that'll, that'll start to create city regions. And I think we'll start to see more and more of a, a degree of autonomy uh, emerging. And I think it'll be very, very healthy. Uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be typically uh, pragmatic. It'll be typically uh, messy. Uh, but actually, I think it'll be uh, what the outcome will be better than what we have now. Uh, thank you. Quite a lot of important points, uh, because there are so many non-Scots in the electorate. And uh, I think that will be a significant moderating force. I, mean, I don't deny that there is a, um, a nasty element in Scottish nationalism, as there is in all forms of nationalism. I'm less worried about it than Will is. I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm only half Scots, so I got a little bit of it as well at school. But I, I regarded it in a more benign light than you do, and I think in the referendum campaign... It was, just, it was just very frightening for a nine-year-old, actually, that yeah. was all. <laughs> in the referendum campaign, I don't see it playing largely because it's not in the interests of the SNP to allow it to play largely. Going to the stability of the polls, um, of course, in one sense, as in every poll, you're asked a hypothetical question, uh, you know, what would you like to happen, and it's not being offered, and now that it is being offered, it could move either way. But I think, and that, that of course applies to all questions, all poll questions on everything. So how I would uh, answer you is, 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 is roughly as follows. We have a very stable answer, and sure it's not the top thing on most people's minds, but you can contrast that with other social issues. Um, and I'll pick one, not entirely at random, um, which is, gay marriage. That is a social issue on which public opinion has turned turtle in only 20 years. Uh, there is now a majority um, of people in both England and Scotland who are in favour mm. of same-sex marriage. Now, uh, contrast that with that, and I'm inclined to say these are both real um, samplings of the data. We have one policy issue on which there it, it really is flat. Another policy issue in which there has been a real and significant change. 
And the reason I've taken that example, it's not, it's not random, is that um, the Scottish government is pressing ahead with a bill for same-sex marriage, which, which the UK government, which is in charge for England and Wales, is holding back on. And the Scottish government is doing that in the teeth of um, extremely vociferous opposition above all from the Catholic Church in Scotland. Catholics are about a fifth of the Scottish population. Um, which is another thing which makes, makes me take a more benign view of Scottish nationalism than Will does. Um, if the party was dominated by the Scottish equivalents of UKIP and BNP, it would not, in my view, be going ahead with a bill for same-sex marriage. That's true. Um, Orkney and Shetland. Yes, very interesting. Uh, and, of course, a perfectly possible referendum result is that Scotland says yes and Orkney and Shetland say no. Orkney and Shetland are the part of Scotland which the SNP does least well um, because it is said from an Orcadian and a Shetlander point of view being governed from Edinburgh is no better than being governed from London and possibly worse because Edinburgh is closer. <laughs> Although not as close as Bergen. So um, it will have great symbolic importance and for sure it will, um, if, if the overall vote is yes, uh, the, Scottish, the Scottish government, future Scottish governments, will have to be very nice indeed to the Orcadians and the Shetlanders. Probably that means showering them with subsidies and not interfering with the sovereign wealth fund that Shetland Council, which has been wiser than the UK government, has already created. I think that's probably the end of the practical implications. Uh, I just think it's not practical for Orkney and Shetland to remain in the UK in that event. Think of East and West Pakistan, which were created in 1947, two separated parts of a single country. Uh, it all ended in tears. So I think symbolically important, but probably not practically. And then, yes, the biggest question that I didn't deal with first time round is debts of the, and liabilities of the two biggest Scottish banks, HBOS and the Royal Bank of Scotland. And there's a historical neatness here uh, the component of HBOS, uh, essentially, that failed was the Bank of Scotland and the Royal Bank of Scotland, the clue is in the title. Both of those banks were created around the time of the Union, the Bank of Scotland in 1695, the Royal Bank in 1727, both of them to deal with the fiscal consequences of coming into Union, and both of them expired as independent entities 301 years after the Union. If you take that as a nomen, then maybe it's a nomen. Mm. Now, what will happen to the liabilities? Um, Alex Salmon's first bargaining position is that the collapse was caused by the failure of UK financial regulation. UK financial regulation was by the UK government in London, presided over at the time by Gordon Brown, and therefore the liabilities are, um, are the UK's responsibility. That line will not survive in bargaining, and one sufficient reason why it will not survive is that a letter dated 2008 or 2007 has surfaced from First Minister Alex Salmond to the then Sir Fred Goodwin, uh, Chief Executive of the Royal Bank of Scotland, and it says, Dear Fred, um, I paraphrase, but the, the, the sense is quite clear. Dear Fred, um, I wish you all the best in your takeover of ABN AMRO. Yours for Scotland, Alex. So, um, I mean, for sure, uh, I think 
we'll have to expect that um, debt will be, will be apportioned per head of population because there's no other way to go forward. Assets of the bad banks are a more interesting question. I don't have enough um, um, economic expertise to comment. Will may want to come in in a moment. My impression is that the bad assets will or would already have been sold off or liquidated by the time independent negotiation, independence negotiations start. And so it, not, it will not be such a large issue as the share of UK debt to which each successor state must take. Do you want to say anything about bad banks and assets? Um, uh, the British taxpayer is um, guaranteeing £306 billion worth of um, RBS's loans. Um, I, 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 I can't imagine that in negotiations that um, Scotland would, especially given that letter, that um, uh, you know, a, a Scottish government would have to guarantee, take over a guarantee of 10% of that, it seems to me. I mean, pro rata. Pro rata. Same, the same argument would apply yeah. uh, under the asset protection scheme. So, I, you know, um, but of course it does, I mean, you made the point earlier, and it's um, well made. I mean, uh, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that the, 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 the two most senior officials um, in British banks that have suffered really opprobrium uh, are um, Peter Cummings, the, uh, who's the chief lending officer of the Bank of Scotland, uh, who uh, last week was banned from taking any job in financial services again, um, and the infamous Fred Goodwin. And, uh, you know, the attempt um, by Edinburgh to become a international financial centre, rather like, you know, Dubai was and Reykjavik was um, and uh, Dublin was, um, really ended in tears. I mean, um, had, um, and this needs to be said, and I have said it in Scotland actually, um, and got a m most amazing hate mail, but I mean, it is, um, you know, uh, Scotland's, um, the build-up of assets from Scottish-based banks makes what took place in Iceland look like a vicar's tea party. And had, had Scotland had a degree of independence, it would have been a bust country, completely bust country. And the amount of lending out of RBS and, uh, and, and Bank of Scotland were unbelievable. And of course, the Dunfermline Building Society went south as well. Um, so, you know, the... the, uh, the um, uh, and it's... Uh, I think you're... I mean, the more you reflect on it, um, the, the, the more I think that the way this, this is going to, and I know some people, uh, I mean, this is kind of Chatham House rules, but and I kind of, I hope Chatham House rules, you know, oh, but what I'm going to say is in the Chatham House rules. I mean, I know um, Alex Salmon's, one of Alex Salmon's speechwriters quite well, and uh, um, he, she uh, was of the view that actually the SP would be very happy um, to settle for kind of. Uh, Devo Max, or effectively, I mean, they would like to talk about creating a federal Britain. I mean, they, they do recognise that actually it gets very, you know, um, a, 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 a hard federal Britain uh, is a kind of better proposition and likely to stick in Scotland than actually soft independence when you're still retaining, you know, the BBC and still retaining the pan and all the rest of it. And actually, the wise owls in the SNP are thinking that. Uh, which gives me a chance to just finish on the question which I, we haven't dealt with yet, which is the West Lothian question. What happens to Scottish and Welsh and Northern Irish MPs at Westminster under the foreseeable futures? 
Well, here, of course, the easy one is independence. They go. Everything short of independence, and I second what Will has just said, which is it is my belief also that wise heads in the SNP uh, would be very happy to settle for something short of independence, but then that um, anything short of independence intrinsically raises the West Lothian question. So I'll quickly, because this will have to be the last thing we talk about today, go through uh, some of the history and some of the options. Um, the, I would say, one of the three greatest figures ever to stride the British political stage, William E. Gladstone, uh, struggled with this one for eight years, from 1886 to 1890, well, seven years, 1886 to 93, and he didn't get an answer in relation to Ireland. His first answer was that the Irish should be out, and that was the proposal in the Bill of 1886. But that doesn't work because under anything short of independence, UK is still responsible for, at a minimum, defence, macroeconomic management, uh, debt management, and um, uh, were there to be a future decision to go to war or not to go to war in Iraq, and Scotland was part of a federal UK, however loose that was, then for sure the Scots would expect to have a say in that decision. So, Having them out does not work. Having them in and out was Mr. Gladstone's next plan, which he put forward in 1893. Uh, in for things like defence and imperial matters, out for English domestic matters. And that, that idea has been re revived under the name English Votes on English Laws. And it was a manifesto commitment of the Conservatives going into the last election. Now, that election was in 2010, we're now 2012, and the promised commission on the West Lothian question has only just been created. From that, I read that Mr. Cameron has found out what Mr. Gladstone did, that in and out is not as easy as it sounds. There are two big difficulties. The first one is that it would be kicked in any time when the UK majority in Parliament was different to the English majority. And so, typically, with current voting patterns, it would be that the Conservatives held a majority of seats in England and <coughs> did not hold a majority of seats in the UK, and there was either a coalition government or a minority government of another party, likely led by the Labour Party. If you have in and out in that circumstance, Labour wins all the votes on Iraq and debt management, and the Conservatives win all the votes on transport and health and education in England. So, well, you may say hooray, but I'm not quite sure how you run a country in those circumstances. Um, uh, do you have a Secretary of State for Defence and a Secretary of State for Health from different parties? If they're from the same party, then one of them is going to lose every parliamentary vote that matters. If they're from different parties, then you've got compulsory coalition. Either way, it's trickier than it looks at first sight. So really, by default, I'm a reduction of numbers man rather than an in and out man. I think the only defensible way to go is to reduce the number of Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish MPs to below their population share. They have been recently reduced but only took population share in the case of Scotland and Northern Ireland and they're still above it in the case of Wales. I think the best practical solution to the West Lothian question is something like a two-thirds rule that the territories get 
two-thirds of the number of MPs that they would otherwise get. They have the right to vote on everything, but at two-thirds, the numbers really, or even a half, the numbers really get quite small, and the chances of them holding the balance, as the Irish party did for 30 years, from 1880 to uh, 1918, uh, are quite small. It's a messy solution. Will spoke in favour of messy solutions a moment ago, but uh, this is an area where I think no neat solution is available except Scottish independence. There's one thing I want to say before we all go, um, which I wanted to say when I was invited to do this, standing here for John Lloyd, is that um, there's one that there's an underlooked dimension of this, which I, I think is underexplored. I'm a great believer in you know, dynamics in politics. And what I think will happen um, uh, is that actually um, the kind of non-conservative uh, parts of England will, I think, get very serious about political organisation, how they, uh, how they kind of, and how they challenge um, you know, conservative dominance in, in England in a way they haven't done, uh, you know, ever really. I mean, the, 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 the huge Labour majorities in Scotland and Wales have allowed the English Labour Party to not think hard for a very long time and to acquiesce in stuff that actually has really kind of held it back, I think, as a, as a, as a truly progressive, um, uh, non-socialist um, force in English politics. And my strong view is that if I was a conservative, I would be, I'd hang on to the union for as long as I could. What you don't want if you're a conservative is this federal structure that's emerging because uh, what it will mean as English votes and uh, you know, the way that you've described start to matter more if the two-thirds rule gets applied is that, believe me, you know, um, the, the kind of... Um, the kind of liberal social democratic part of the Labour Party um, will really go very hard at the old Labour part which holds it back and uh, you'll start to get a and there'll be you know, um, serious electoral compacts with what remains the Liberal Democrats and actually I, I, I would expect um, and this is, a, this is one thing I wanted to say that and when someone asked why should anyone in England care um, what we're watching is the emergence I think of a messy federalism and what we're watching um, with, uh, that, in that, in that, is going to be the, the political architecture in which um, a long period of conservative hegemony is going to be challenged um, and actually speaking as a kind of uh, coming from the liberal kind of Whiggish part of British politics I think that's probably very good for the country and that you know that's been associated with success rather than defensiveness that, that's a very controversial thing to sign off on but there we are <laughs> well does it oh. Greater depth of understanding than I think I had before. So if you'd like to join me, please.